encourage our youth and encourage all those that work with our youth from some principles from God's Word, but we also want to uh, be prayerful about that. And we want to be praying on behalf of the students and all that will be working with them. And so be putting on your attendance card today, if you will, the school that you or your children attend. And also if you work with uh, children in a school, if you'll put your position in the school that you work in, we'd like to be mindful of that in prayer next Sunday night. Sarah Winchester was a disturbed person. She was the widow of William Winchester, who was the son of Winchester, who founded Winchester Repeated Arms. They made millions making rifles. She had a daughter to die in infancy, and then her husband died. Somewhere along the way, she was convinced that there were spirits or ghosts that were haunting her. Someone convinced her that if she would continually have the pounding of hammers at her house, that she would never be disturbed by these ghosts. So she moved to San Jose, California. She bought a six-room farmhouse, and she hired the best carpenters. She could acquire the best because she paid double the wage of what everyone else paid. They worked 24 hours a day, including Saturdays and Sundays, and also holidays. And for decades, work continued on this house. By the time it was over with, there was no master plan, so the house rambled everywhere. Eventually, there was 160 rooms in this house. There were hallways that would literally equal miles of corridors. There would be staircases leading nowhere. Doors opening to walls, balconies built on balconies, towers for observation, but yet only to be surrounded by so many buildings that they observed nothing. Some of the structure was as high as seven stories high. Not only did she fear the ghost, but she feared death. She was convinced that if she would have her nurse continue traveling around in her buggy, that if everyone believed she was well, that she would remain well and alive. And so as her health failed, she continued to send her nurse out. She also believed that death could not find her if she did not sleep in the same room two nights in a row. So she would continually pick various rooms to sleep in. But finally one night, death found her in the blue room. What's your perception of life and death? It's an important question because the way you perceive life after death will affect how you perceive life before death. When we think about the things that have been said and written, I'd like to read to you what an infidel named Ingersoll said. He stood over the grave of a child and he said, We do not know which is the greatest blessing, life or death. I want to remind you, this is what an infidel, an unbeliever would say at the funeral of a child. We do not know which is the greatest blessing, life or death. We cannot say that death is not good. We do not know whether the grave is the end of life or the door of another or whether the night here is not somewhere else a dawn. 
Every cradle ask us, whence? Every coffin, whither? The poor barbarian weeping over his dead can answer the question as intellectually and satisfactorily as the road priest of the most authentic creed. The tearful ignorance of the one is just as consoling as the learned and the unmeaning words of the other. Friends, can you imagine living in such ignorance? And I do not say that to be disrespectful to him, but to reveal the fact of how miserable it must be to live, honestly not knowing if there's a life after death, and not knowing Jesus Christ, and not knowing the hope of heaven. You see, it is when we live on this earth without a vision of heaven, we live on this earth in vain. There was a gentleman named James Montgomery Boyce who once said these words, In our day, belief in the second coming of Jesus Christ has faded into a remote and sometimes irrelevant doctrine into many large segments of the Christian church. And it is entirely possible that our present lack of courage and lack of joy flow from this attitude. When's the last time you thought about heaven? Friends, I'm not asking you that so, so we can step on each other's toes. I need to ask myself that, and I need to answer that this morning so I can have some kind of understanding of what my understanding is about life on earth. When's the last time you thought about heaven? When is the last time you thought about you yourself going to heaven? Did you think about it this morning? We've just sang several songs about going to heaven. Hopefully all of us did in the last few minutes. But did you think about it yesterday? Was there anything you did or didn't do yesterday, and the reason you did or you didn't do it was because of your citizenship already being in heaven? Notice that text again as... It's already been capably read. Look at the third chapter again, the Philippians, the third chapter, verse 20, where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. When's the last time you thought about Jesus coming and you kind of got a little antsy? The anticipation was great. You know, like children that they know that their birthday is coming up that week. And all week they count down the days to their birthday. And you remember as a child that feeling when you woke up and, and it dawned on you, this is my birthday. The anticipation, the eager waiting. How many of us? It'd be a better description for us to say this world is our home. Because we rarely think of heaven. Or can we truly say, this world's not our home? We're just a traveling through because we're foreigners. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for the second coming of Jesus. The text that's been read is in a paragraph that has three verses before that paragraph. 
I'd like for us to read those three verses by way of introduction and see what Paul was working and responding to. In other words, he lays down some thoughts in the first three verses, and then the response to those thoughts is, wait a minute, our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for the Savior. Let's look at verse 17, 18, and 19 of Philippians, the third chapter. Notice he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now let's pause there for just a moment. First verse he tells us, I'm striving to live the Christian life and I encourage you to follow my example. What a beautiful life we live when we can say to our children, I'd like for you to follow my example. When we can say to a young Christian, I want to encourage you in living the Christian life. I hope you'll follow my example. Paul's not being arrogant here. Paul is literally and simply stating the fact, I'm a faithful Christian. I urge you to be a faithful Christian also. But then he offsets this by saying, with tears in his eyes, there are others that do not live the Christian life. As a matter of fact, they are enemies of the cross. Now, how would you describe enemies of the cross? That verse 19, he gives us about three insights to the enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Whose God, in other words, desires what they want to fulfill, is their belly. In other words, the carnal, the fleshly nature. Whose glory is in their shame. And notice the long dash there. Now, it's almost as if Paul says, I've told you what their end is. It's terminal. It's eternally terminal. He says, I told you what drives their life. It's a carnal nature. I've told you about how they're going to gloat in things that they ought to be ashamed of. And it's almost as if Paul says, let me put it in one simple statement. Do you see the rest of 19? Who set their mind on earthly things. This world is not my home. I'm just a foreigner here. And any time I start living as if this world is my home, I've started placing my mind on earthly things. I've started living in such a way that the end is going to be destructive. My carnal nature is going to be my guiding force. And I'm going to start glorying. I'm going to start bragging in things that I ought to be ashamed of. So as we think about things on this earth, is it that we should be anti-living? No. When we go to this very same book, back up to Philippians, the first chapter, we see that Paul figured out how to find a glorious way to live on this earth. He really believed that there was a benefit to living on this earth, but he also, while he saw the benefit of living on this earth, could see the benefit of eternal life. Look with me, if you will, verse 21, 22, 23, and 24. Now, notice in 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look at 23, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So speaking from a selfish, personal standpoint, Paul says, for me, it's far better for me to go ahead and die. Now, we'd have to pause right there and say, Paul, are you suicidal? And, and you may think, that's a silly question. When people have never read these passages before, that is a very sincere question that I've received more than once. Was Paul suicidal at this point? Why, why was he saying, let's just get off this earth? 
Let's leave this place. No. He realized that the body was the temple of God. He realized that life is a gift from God. He simply realized that when his time of traveling through this earth is over, that the greatest is yet to come. So now here's the question then. What is he going to do with his time on earth that he is traveling? Well, this leads us to this next verse. Look at 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. You see, he says, for me, to go ahead and die would be better. But for you, it's more needful that I stay here. Now, when we go to this next slide, notice how all this fits together. And and I have to confess to you, usually when I study this passage here, my mind stops right there. But this week, as I studied through this, 25 really leaped off the page when we see why he says it's more needful for him or for them for him to stay on this earth. Look at 25. And being confident of this... I know. You see the redundancy? He's emphasizing something here about his time on earth. I'm confident of this. I know this. Paul, what is it that you're so sure that's going to help them? Notice what he says. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for, notice these two things, for your progress and joy of faith. The idea of progress is literally to advance forward. When we make progress, we move forward. Now Paul says, I want to stay on this earth so you can progress. Now Paul, what are we? Are we on this earth to make this world our home? No, we're on this earth and we're citizens of heaven while we're on this earth. We're simply taking a journey. Paul, how do you want to help others? He says, I want to help others on their journey. I want to help them progress towards heaven also. I want to help them find joy. This is talking about a deep calmness, a delight in their faith. Friends, don't mistake joy with ease. The Christian life has never been promised to be easy. But the Christian life has been promised to be a life of joy. You know, this year we have studied many sermons, many passages that talk about the joy of the Lord is our strength. Isn't it awesome that Paul says, my time on this earth, I want to help others advance towards heaven and I want them to find joy in doing so. Joy in their faith. You see, as he looked at the time on this earth, he looked at it as an opportunity to help others advance forward. But when we go over to the third chapter, look early on in the third chapter. Let's begin reading in verse 3. And notice in in Philippians, the third chapter, in verse 3, how he begins to describe his life. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, the greater meaning to this is the fact that the Jews were still gloating. Some of them were still gloating in the fact that we're of the lineage of Abraham. And so if we can glory in fleshly things such as our lineage of Abraham, no one else can compare to that. In other words, to accept Christ and to live for Christ wasn't nearly as important to some segments of the Jews as it was to just be simply a fleshly Jew. 
And so Paul is addressing this with a much broader application. And notice as we begin reading in 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. So he says, okay. And, and, and I want to, to make application, I want us to kind of talk about the flesh here and talk about life. What is life? Life is made up of, of our opportunities. It's made up of our abilities. It's made up of the way we use our energy. And Paul's saying, okay, you want to brag about fleshly things? He challenges you. He says, you try to outbrag me about fleshly things. He said, I had a life that could be boasted about from a fleshly nature. And he begins in five, I circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is the law, blameless. Now, maybe if you don't know much background of Judaism, maybe that doesn't mean so much. But what he's saying is, I was excelling when I was relying upon who I was in the flesh. Paul, what did you do with it all? Notice how he says, But what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. It doesn't mean that he stopped being all of these things. He says, Now I've started using my life in the flesh as a gain for God and not a gain for me personally. Look with me, if you will, as we read 8, 9, 10, and 11. And, and I, I ask you, don't, don't get lost in the thought that what we're moving toward is really summarized in verse 11. So notice this in 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. You see, that's what he ultimately wants. He wants to gain Christ. Now, how's this going to be described? Verse 9, be found in him, not of my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Now, here goes. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I may acquire, I may attain, what? To the resurrection of the dead. Paul, how are you living? He says, I take all the things in my life, I take all the opportunities, all the abilities that God has given me. And he says, I want to live in such a way that by any means, no matter what I have to do when I die, I want to have obtained the resurrection that will be with Jesus. Friends, what do you want more than anything? More than anything. God right now said, you ask it and it's granted. One wish, more than anything, what do you want? Paul says, I want to take everything that I am and I want to use it for gain for Christ because on that final day, I want to attain, grasp, achieve, the resurrection of the dead. 
It doesn't matter what titles, degrees, promotions. It doesn't matter what popularity, power, successes. It doesn't matter how much or how little. It doesn't matter what I have and am and become and prosper on this earth if I have not attained the resurrection with Jesus Christ. I fail. That's all that matters. This life is just a journey. A journey that we live to decide our God and our eternal destination. I'll say that again. Our life we live here is a journey in which we decide our God and our eternal destination. Paul, with tears in his eyes, says, I want to tell you about some enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. And their God is their belly. In other words, he says it's their fleshly nature. And Paul now writes and says, no, that's not me though. I want a resurrection with the Lord. I want to use my life to exalt Jesus, my God. And so it's because of this that we can summarize what Paul says by speaking of his goal, because that's the word he uses. Drop down now, if you will, in verse 12 and 13. Not that I have already attained. Notice again, it's the attaining, achieving. He says, speaking of that final glorious reward, I've not already attained that or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Now, he's going to list several things, but he's going to put it all under one umbrella. But one thing I do, now here's the one thing, forget those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal. What's the goal? For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase in 12 where he says, Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. The laid hold there has literally seized me. He's already grabbed me. We think of a kidnapper laying hold of someone. We think of a a police officer seizing or arresting someone. Here, Paul says, I want to tell you about my life that's been changed ever since Jesus Christ laid hold of me. It's the same kind of language when Jesus spoke in John the 10th chapter and He spoke about us being in the hands of the Father and He says no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. He's not talking there of eternal security that once we're saved we can never be lost. He's saying that no one can take us out of the hand of the Father except us. We've been laid hold by Jesus Christ once we're saved and we are the only ones that can break that hold. Now what's the goal? The goal is to take those things, even if it's the good things of the fleshly that we could boast about, and he says, I forget those things. And I'm reaching. I'm pressing. Pressing toward what? The prize. If we don't win this prize, We've lost it all. The prize of the upward call. If we don't win this prize that's calling us up, 
we're going to fall low to destruction. I press toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's not my God. I've lost the prize. I won't have and know an upward call. And I'll find myself whose end is destruction. Our God is our belly. And we'll boast of things we ought to be shameful of. We're minding the things of the earth. This morning, what do you think about heaven? It's mentioned by name over 260 times in the New Testament. If you and I took the theme of heaven out of the New Testament, we would not have the same book. It's from heaven that Jesus came. It's from heaven the angels announced His birth. It's to heaven that He prayed and submitted to God the Father. It's to heaven that He spoke of, telling us that we ought to go and that He goes to prepare a place for us. It's from heaven that angels came down to minister to Him. It's to heaven that He ascended to sit on the right-hand throne of God. It's from heaven that He promises to come again and take us there. It's from heaven that comes the words that you and I have the opportunity to live by. Friends, we're not talking about some fantasy out there. We're not talking about something that just makes good motivational speeches. We're talking about a place that is as real as this very auditorium you and I sit in. I must this morning stop and ask myself, have I made this world my home? Or am I a citizen of heaven, eagerly waiting for the Savior's return because we want to go there. Many years ago, an old restoration preacher was lying in poor physical health, a lot of suffering and had been sick for a while and it was obvious he wouldn't live very much longer. One came to visit him and asked, how are you doing? And he said, I'll be well soon. In a matter of minutes, he died. He knew exactly what he was speaking of. He was well. Far better than he'd ever been. Beyond this life, beyond this earth, beyond our imagination there is a heaven it's prepared for those that are prepared I need to ask myself that this morning 
And I need to rise every morning and remind myself that I'm a citizen of that kingdom and live each day in view of that. Have you ever been baptized into Christ to submit to the King of the kingdom of heaven? As a believer willing to repent of sins and confess? If you haven't been baptized, why not this morning? Maybe you have been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've lost the way and you're not walking with the King and you want to come back home and you want to make your citizenship sure in heaven. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.